Neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I'm the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam. And wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. There's a situation at our border right now where there are kids separated from their parents in camps. If you don't know part of my story, uh, Trisha and I are fostering to adopt three little ones. As we were first granted the kids, we struggled. Because part of being an evangelical means being pro-human flourishing. As a church, we say that the way that a kid flourishes best is when their parents are their primary disciples. When we do baby dedications as a church, we do it because we recognize that God has given the primary responsibility to disciple that kid to the parent. When we do children's and youth ministry, we say that the best possible situation for a child is to have a healthy home life. And so our role as a children's and youth ministry is not to replace the parent, but to come alongside that parent and equip them to fulfill the purpose that God has for them in the life of that child. Along this path to adoption, my wife and I have um, had the ability to read the redacted files of our kids' history and and their birth mother's story also. It's caused me to have a lot more compassion for her. And it's even caused me to repent several times about the heart attitudes and mindsets I had toward her because of things that my kids have gone through to this point. Even so, if you were to tell me that my kids deserve to be mistreated because of something that occurred in the life of their birth mother, we would have a hard time having a relationship. The kids that are in those camps, despite what has happened, and this is about, not about a political thing of who should be doing what or what did, went wrong. This is about how the body of Christ rises up and is able to come to the need of those who are in need. Was it the sin of the parents or the kids who caused them to be in this situation? Is that important or is it important that God is seen in this situation? We had a responsibility and that opportunity. You were given a handout as you walked in today. And that handout um, shows some ways and some supplies that we're going to be collecting in order to send to one of the refugee camps down in Texas. These are things that we'll be collecting. Please try to keep it to those lists. It's really specific. Uh, we have a ministry contact that's going to be delivering those things and make sure they get to the place where they're supposed to go to help those that are in most need. This is a way where we can stand up as a body and directly impact in a tangible way those who are in need. So no matter where we stand on what we think should happen along immigration, this is a way that we can love on those who are in need. And so I ask you to consider that and pray about that opportunity 
um, over this week. Uh, we'll start collecting things tomorrow. They'll be available Monday through Thursday. Um, we'll be here collecting things on Wednesday nights during family dinner and also on Sunday mornings. And so um, please take advantage of that opportunity that we have to care for those who are in need. If this is your first time uh, at Fellowship High Crest, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here as our guest. As I speak this morning, you will see some page numbers on the screen, and those page numbers directly correlate to the blue Bibles um, that you have in your seat. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't have one that's easy to read, please take that one as our gift to you. If you know someone who doesn't have a Bible or doesn't have one that's easy to read, please take that one and give it to them as the gift, a gift from the both of us. Today we'll be continuing our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter. And our passage for today comes from 1 Peter 2, verse 9 through uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and it's found on page 739. Um, If you would join me there, I'm actually going to start reading at the beginning here at verse 8 of chapter 3, and I'm going to read through the 15th verse as we start this morning. There at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 15. On page 739 or around those parts, we find it to say this. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as your Lord, uh, as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. This is God's word. You know, I have a set of vitamins that I like to take um, every morning before my feet hit the floor. Why before my feet hit the floor? I don't know. This is part of my routine. I'm strange like that. But y'all leave me alone. My wife still loves me. <laughs> and so being that my intention is to take these vitamins before my feet hit the floor, my routine says that I'm supposed to put these vitamins on my nightstand each night before I lay down, you know, in order to have them beside my bed when I wake up. But what normally happens is this. It starts getting late in the evening, I go into the kitchen, I grab some water, I get a snack, I kind of wander around, because I know I'm supposed to be doing something in there, but I forgot what I was supposed to be doing, and then I walk to the bedroom, and I sit on the edge of the bed, and I say, dang, I forgot those vitamins again. So I get up, I go back to the kitchen, and maybe Trisha says something to me while I'm walking to the kitchen, and if I'm good, I remember to get the vitamins, if not, then I get another snack, and then I walk back to the room... And then I, I get to the edge of the bed and I sit down and go, 
Dang. And she said, what's wrong? I forgot those vitamins again. And so I go back, and we kind of continue this time. I get the vitamins and put them beside my nightstand. But you know what? How many of y'all have been to this place? You've been watching the game. You've been watching your show. It's getting good. You got a taste for a certain thing, but you can't get up because it's in the middle of your show or it's in the middle of that drive, and they going down. And so you keep watching. Then the commercial come on. So you run to the refrigerator. You had a taste for a certain thing. You open the refrigerator, and you cannot remember what you had a taste for. <laughs> or this. You're like, oh, man, yeah, I need to call this person about this. And so you pull out your phone, and you're in that thing. You pull up your contacts, and then you're like, you go to call them, and it's ringing. You're like, yeah, I've been meaning to talk to them about this for a while. We need to get on this. And then the phone starts ringing. They say hello, and you're like, why did I call them? <laughs> hey, you. Um, it, it, how many of us have been in that place, right? We all have been there. You know, we, we all have been in that place where um, – we start with great intentions, but somewhere along the way, we lose focus and forget why we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We forget that. And for many of us, this whole following Christ thing falls into that category. I mean, we pray this prayer and somebody told us that we were supposed to start meeting with these group of people. Man, we prayed this prayer, and so um, we started going to these things and gathering with these people on these certain days and doing these certain things and with no real reason as to why. I was invited to church, and and is church the building? Is it an event, or is it something else? You know, and and then our schedule changed, our behavior changed, our our friends changed, and and then all of a sudden we started doing all these things, and there was some good stuff, but then somebody who wasn't a part of the change asked why we were doing these things, and we really had no answer for them. And so... Is this supposed to be we're doing these things so that more people come? And what if we're doing these things and more people don't come? Does that mean we need to change our location or change our music or change the lighting or change the seats or, or change the shirts we wear? What if people don't come when we invite them? Are we doing it wrong? Did I ask them wrong? What is our church a failure if other churches are larger than our church? Are these even the questions that we're supposed to be asking? If not, then what questions should we be asking? The truth is we live in a country where there are 85 unbelieving and 85 million unbelieving and unchurched people. Then there's another 15 million people who believe but are still not connected with a faith body. Hey. Within a five-mile radius of where you're sitting at right now, in a five-mile radius circle, that's from like 21st to 45th and Burlingame to California, they say 61% of the people that live in that circle are projected to not be connected with a body of faith. And that number has increased by 15% over the last 10 years. They fall within that 100 million. Now, I bet you they have a lot of questions over why we are here this morning when the World Cup is on. But I bet you if we started asking questions here, even in this room, there's some of us who are wondering why we are here. How do we give those who are unbelieving and unchurched an opportunity to discover the answers to these questions surrounding the church? And how do we equip those who are part of the church with the tools and answers needed to give a sufficient answer? Our passage for this morning helps us out with that. The New Testament is a set of missionary documents written to missionary situations. 
And when trouble hits, we all know that we reduce to the least common denominator. We reduce to only those things that absolutely have to be done. We reduce and ask ourselves, is this really needed? When you get to the end of the month and there's more month left than money, you start reducing to, do I really need that? Girl, today you're going to get no cheese. You know, we, we got we to cut back. No cheese on that burger today. Peter spoke into this situation. He needed and wanted to make sure that the community of believers kept the main thing the main thing. And so as we talk about this passage tonight, we're going to let the end drive the means. We're going to begin with the end. And so looking at Peter's words in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 2, this is what he says. He says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show Others, the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into the one, his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you're a God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Yeah, sometimes we forget about the mercy that we've received, right? So, you know what? Language is so important, and here's why. Language creates culture, and culture trumps strategy every day of the week. And the language you use either makes things clear or makes them fuzzier. They either explains what you believe or it causes a whole cloud in what you believe. And, and traditionally, the way that we use this word church has caused a lot of confusion amongst those that we hope to reach. And here's why. Right. In our culture, we learn from an early age that the church is a building. Or we see it as an organization. And also, many Christians function as, as if the church is a meeting or an event that we attend in which we invite people to. But if we fail to understand what it means to be church, then we'll always struggle to understand what it means to follow Jesus. And this matters. If anything is a hindrance to people being introduced to Jesus, then it must be disposed of. Now, the cross will always offend. Christ crucified would always be a stumbling block, but we must remove every other offense as we do life in a way that exposes and demonstrates the true nature of who Jesus Christ is. So let's start with the end in mind. And I know I can't spend as long on this as I would want to, but I want to give a a little time to this. Now, the New Testament word that we translate as church means gathering. And that word existed long before Christ ever began using it. But that's what God does. He takes what's coming and he redeems it and uses it for his purpose. The word and the thought of covenant existed long before Abraham and God made this agreement together. But God took this coming thing that was coming to the world and he reused it for his purposes. There are no instruments of Hebrew origin. But God took these pagan instruments and prescribed them to be used in worship of him. God always takes that which is coming, that which is thrown away, that which is simplistic, and uses it for his purposes. So this word, traditionally, before it was used for, for Christ's sake, was meant to be a group of people, a gathering of people, including political meetings or even a riotous mob. That's what the word meant before. So even from its secular roots, church has never described a building or an event, but always a group of people 
But this group of people was to be different. This group of people had a bigger plan. And what was it? It's seen in Revelation 21.3. It says this, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Here's what John was saying. He was saying, in the vision he received, or the ending vision, the ending goal is not to go to heaven. I know that just shocked some of y'all. The ending goal is not to go to heaven. The end goal is to be in the new heavens and the new earth, which make up the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem happens when the earth and, and, and heaven meet and God comes and makes his home amongst the people. He makes all things new. Therefore, the ending goal is not for us to go and be with God, but for him once again to come and be with us. If you look all the way back to Genesis, what happened in the cool of the evening of each day? God came and walked with Adam. The ending goal is not for us to go be with him, but for once again him to come and be with us. Him to come and gather with those who have been redeemed. In Revelation 22, John says that there is a river of life that flows from the throne of God. The water that gives life produces a tree. Now, the word that's used for tree in that verse is not the common word that's used for tree, but it's actually the word that's used in the New Testament to describe the cross. Uh Uh-oh. So that tree brings healing to the nations. The fruit that uh, that the tree produces that brings healing to the nations is not a special rub or a bean, but it's a people. So if the tree is the cross and the cross is the center, who is the group of people that are birthed by this cross? They're the disciples. And who are, what do the disciples make up? They make up the church. What is it that pulled this group of people together who were given birth by the cross? It's the gospel. And what is the gospel? That Jesus died so that sinners may be forgiven of their sins if they repent and believe in him. When we get to the end, there will be a group of people doing life together with their king. The throne of the king is the centerpiece of the people. Life is given and sustained by what comes from the king. The fruitfulness of the king is seen in the group of people that are birthed and sustained by the king. This group of people is called the church. It is not about an individual. It's always about a group. From the end vision that was always given, it is not about an individual. It's always about a group. There's a part of your faith which cannot be experienced outside the community of God's people. If you are not a part of a church, there is a part of your faith that you will always be missing out on. That's like going on a cruise and only eating on the Lido deck. All you getting is ice cream cones. I know some of y'all would enjoy that. But that's filet mignon in the dining room if you ever just go over there. That is why at Fellowship High Christian, when we describe church, we say that it is centered around two things, gospel and community. Gospel is always our content, and community is always our context. Now, gospel is made up of two parts. The first part is the word, which we'll cover next week because it is a message which must be proclaimed. The gospel is a message that must be proclaimed. You cannot stay silent. I know you've heard that false quote of, you know, 
Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. But no one can find where Augustine really said that. The gospel is a message which must be proclaimed. We cannot be silent about it. We cannot hope that somebody else says it. We have to proclaim the gospel. But I'm going to step back off of that one because I might get too excited. (laughs) The second part is mission, which focuses on, we're going to focus on this week. It's the part of the gospel that is lived out. So on Sundays at 11 a.m. at 455 Southeast Gulf Park Boulevard in the great neighborhood of Highland Crest in the town of Topeka, Kansas, is where those disciples who call Fellowship High Crest home gather each Sunday. That is why, you know, I really like calling what we do here on Sundays more the gathering than I like calling it church. Because on Sundays is when the church gathers, and throughout the week is when the church scatters. It's important to be clear with your communication. On Sundays is when the church gathers, and throughout the week is when the church scatters. But it's important, it's very important that if we're going to go according to God's vision, according to the ending vision, given to John in Revelation, then unlike our individualistic thinking and our culture and the way it produces those things, the gospel can be lived out alone. We have to understand that. Why? Because the context for the gospel is always community. And this mission takes place not in events, but as a community of people live everyday life together on mission. In order to do mission in the way that the Bible prescribes it, you have to do it with others. That's why family dinner is so important. That's why small groups are so important. That's why, all the, that's why we're saying those things, because we want you to be true to what you say you believe. That's why we continue stressing those things are so important is because there's a part of this that you just can't do alone because that's how God made it, not because that's how we said it. It is so important. So how do you know I'm not blowing smoke? Look back at our focal passage, verses 11 through 12, act as a headline for the rest of the section. And they read, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. God told the nation of Israel as he joined them together for the first time at Deuteronomy uh, in Deuteronomy 910. When he joined them together for the first time to himself, he says, hey. I want you to draw people to me by the way that you live. By the way that you live, I want you to draw people to me. That was what he told them from the beginning, that our lives together, they were going to be this city within a city, this nation within these nations. We're supposed to be a city within a city as a church that live differently, that draw people to God because of the way we live. So he says this, how is that going to look? Two words, respect and submission. And I'm going to skim because I got to get somewhere else. But Peter was saying, as y'all do good works together, as we fellowship high Christ, do good works together in society in verses 13 through 17, in, in the workplace in verses 18 through 25, and in the home in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, that although people might not initially hold to our viewpoint, that our life together will be an explanation for the hope that we have. It won't be our Twitter feeds. It won't be our Snapchats. It won't be our Facebook posts. 
It will be our life together that gives an explanation for the hope that we have. In order for this to be the case, the two groups, they must do two things. And the first, they must resist their sinful desires. And what's their sinful desires? Their sinful desires are their selfish desires. How do we get to this point? Because from verse 13 of chapter 2 to verse, what, to verse 7 of chapter 3, Peter says that the church must submit itself to every living creature on earth. Whoa. That is a strong word. In every marriage counseling I've ever heard about, the thing that's always a stumbling block is when they bring up that part about wives submit to your husbands. Everybody's like, uh, well, Pastor, I got a question. So what does that mean? He's, submitting is not popular, nor is it coming, but it is powerful. And here's, what, here's what the studies say. Research shows that unbelieving husbands are more likely to be converted because of their believing wives. And why is that? Because these wives are living out an apologetic of respect and submission in their homes, and that draws these men to Christ. Even when he's acting like a knucklehead, when she lives out what she says she believes, he starts asking questions of why. And that's what draws him closer to Christ. Peter says that when a community of Christians do in-focused living, they encourage good questions. Peter ends our passage for this morning by saying this. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open um, to their prayers, but the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. And that's something that we need to remember and you need to circle. Sometimes you're going to suffer for doing what is right. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as, your, as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. This is what he's saying. Peter is saying, stop screaming your pro this and pro that and start living it. For instance, if you are pro-life, then start mentoring young girls about the virtues of abstinence teaching them what God's word says and living out the benefits of waiting before them in normal everyday life so that they see that obedience to Jesus offers more pleasure than sex. Start loving on young girls that make mistakes or even willfully rebel and and get pregnant so that they see that the forgiveness that Jesus offers through the gospel is still more comforting than the escape hatch of abortion. Start adopting kids of all ages so that the unbelieving world begins to see that just like this loving community of believers rescues unwanted kids, that Jesus, a perfect Savior, the Son of God, sinless, came from heaven to earth to rescue and redeem sinners like you and me uh, and do life so that they can have a relationship with the King and do life with him forever. 
He offers those he saves a new family and a new history. He gives them a new inheritance and a new standing. He acts not out of obligation, but out of love. How does this, how does this look? Think about this. Some studies say there are between 40 and 50 million adoptable orphans in the world right now. These are kids who would be better cared for through adoption. 40 to 50 million. There is about 800 million Christians, people who have stepped out of the line of faith, proclaimed Christ as their Lord and Savior, and therefore identified as born and green Christians in the world right now. 40 to 50 million adoptable orphans, 800, 800 million Christians. That means that, if, that roughly 7% of born-again Christians could eradicate all of the adoptable orphans in the world. And the other 93% of the body of Christ could care for those 7% as they care for these orphans. Now, there are between 143 million and, and, and 210 million total orphans in the world. That still means if you take this 800 million, we still get to between 18 to 26% of the body of Christ it would take to totally eradicate orphans in the whole world. Still leaving the rest of the body of Christ to care for that 18 to 26% so that we no longer have orphans in the world. How much more effective do you think it would be to do that than a picket sign or a Facebook rant? Do you think the unbelieving world would start to ask some questions? Do you think unchurched folk will start to ask some questions as the church started to adopt the 14 million orphans that are living with AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa? What kind of questions would they begin to ask about the hope that we have if we start to live that kind of life? So, you know, the word Christianity occurs zero times in the Bible. The word Christian occurs about three times. But the word disciple occurs over 260 times in the Bible. So if we're going to give or going to be a part of God achieving his ultimate purpose, then we have to, as a community of people, birth and sustain by the gospel, live life in a way that draws other people to God, to the message. We have that opportunity. We have that opportunity to live in a way that draws others to him by the way we live and make some sacrifices. But you think about it. I just want to be real with you. If 7% stepped up, how could the other 93% take care of them to help soften the blow of what it would take to eradicate that? You know, sometimes I get asked, and they say, John, man, why do you come up with all these crazy stories all the time? The answer is simple. Love Jesus, love people, and love life. When you love Jesus... You will believe that the gospel is the greatest story ever. And you will learn it and you will look for every opportunity to share it. And I know this is a hard one for some. When you love Jesus, you will share the gospel. It is the best thing you know and you will look for every opportunity to share it. When we love Jesus as a group of people, we will share the gospel and we will look for every opportunity to share. And I know that's a stiff thing to hear. 
I know it's a hard thing to hear because it is a frightening thing to hear. But when we love, I love my kids. And I'll tell you stories all day long about my kids, but I love Jesus more. When we love Jesus, we will share the gospel. Because it is the greatest story that we know. Loving Jesus fights against legalism because you don't feel burdened to talk about things that we love. What we talk about naturally is the things that we love. Look at our social media. Look at the conversations we have with our friends. Whatever we lead with, that's what we love. And I know that's a hard thing to hear, but I want to lean into that this morning. There's people dying without knowing Christ. 61% around us are separated. When we love Jesus, we will share the gospel. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Loving Jesus also counteracts our fear of man. It counteracts our desire for approval or our fear of rejection. A passion for Jesus means that he matters more than, than other people. Meditate on Jesus until he captures our hearts. When we love Jesus, we will share the gospel. Love people. Love will care for all their needs, physical, social, emotional. But gospel love also recognizes our greatest need, which is to know God through Christ. So true love will always want to introduce people to our greatest friend, Jesus. It goes right back to it. If you love the thought of mission and community, but, but you don't really care for people. And some of us are there. Like, let's be real, right? Some of us love the thought of, of gospel and community, but we can't really get down with this whole people thing. That's the reason I got to wear shirts like this. Like, I'm saved, but I got hands. And so you got to, I mean. <laughs> let's pray that God will give us a heart for people. Let's pray seriously that he would give us a heart for people and then love life. Christians should be the world's greatest fans. Sports, fishing, gardening, crafting, technology, literature, work, cars, food, fashion, all these things are good. All of them are gifts from God which we should enjoy. Our job is to have fun to the glory of God. We need to rediscover how to see God in these things and do them with other as an explanation for the hope that we have. Being a Christian doesn't mean we have to be sticks in the mud. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we can't have fun. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we have to be boring. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we have to be closed up all the time. We should be the ones having the most fun around this thing because we know how it ends. If you're loving Jesus, then there should be some evident joy that's apparent in your life. If you ain't got no joy, then you ain't got Jesus. And I know I just split verbs, but that's what you need to do sometimes. And if you're here this morning and you realize that that you're having trouble loving others and loving life because you don't know what it means to love Jesus. Here's the good news. The best news. It's the day we can see that change. 
Today you can make a decision to stop trying and simply just be. To stop working and realize that it's been done in Christ. If that's where you're at, mark it on your card. Come, we, we have a team that's waiting to talk to you in our prayer room after this in Media One. We want to talk more with you about this, what it means to trust and follow Christ. Come and talk to us. Come and talk to one of us up here at the stage after service. We would love to talk with you more about what that means. If you're here and you know Christ, Let's really live a life that draws others to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your son. As we live on the edges of society, outside of popular culture, Father, help remind us to keep the main thing the main thing. Let us always be in focus. And therefore, let us live lives that draw others to you. Father, there's someone here today that's, that's steady trying to earn their way to you in a relationship with you by how many church services they come to and how many Bible scriptures they remember and how many good deeds they can pile up. Let them know that this all rubbish, that it's been accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent to ransom us when we were in our saddest state. Father, help us to see the value in living life together on mission each and every day. We praise you. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your darling son Jesus' name. Amen.